Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is Andrew, and I wanted to take a moment before airing this episode, which was recorded a number of weeks back, uh, to acknowledge the season that we're in as a nation and as a church. It's June 2nd, 2020, and even as I speak, hundreds of thousands of people across this country and across the globe are marching and protesting and resisting um, the brutal murder of George Floyd. Of course, this is just shedding shedding more light, frankly, th- than ever on the realities uh, of police brutality against the black community. We, of course, want to acknowledge Ahmaud Arbery, who was murdered actually here in Georgia, as well as Breonna Taylor, who was murdered in her own home recently, uh, and the countless others, some of whom we know by name and others, many of whom we don't. So before we air this episode, which again was recorded weeks and weeks ago uh, and has nothing to do with this subject matter, we felt it apt to just take a moment to acknowledge as, as individuals the pain and loss that so many are feeling and our prayers that this would open our eyes to the inequity and the realities that so many of our brothers and sisters live in every single day and that many others of us, and speaking for myself, a a privileged white male, um, just don't understand. That being said, we know acknowledgement is just one very small step and uh, there's, there's much to be done in terms of, of putting things into practice. And while this is just a, a platform for dialogue, we hope that in the coming weeks we can have some recorded conversations, both internally and with some guests that can hopefully empower us to, to again, move beyond just an acknowledgement uh, or a social media post and into some meaningful change. Uh, but hopefully that's coming soon, and uh, we do pray blessings over all of you and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Laity Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations about Christian spirituality, discovery, and practice. Thanks for joining in. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Laity Podcast. We're grateful to have you joining us for this great conversation um, that is coming uh, here. We're really grateful to have uh, Bill Webb as well as Gord Oest. Did I pronounce that correctly, Gord? Uh, pretty close. Osti. Osti. Okay, great. But we'll uh, answer. I answer to a lot. Uh, Osti. <laughs> I can get Osti right now that you correct me once. I think we're good. Um, Bill and, and Gord, thanks so much for joining us. Um, these two gentlemen recently released a new book, which we're here to talk about, Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric, Wrestling with Troubling War Texts. And uh, we're just excited to have you. Stephen, we've uh, heard from these two. Are you there with us tonight? I'm here. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again, guys, for covering out the time. Um, maybe what we can do, um, just to, for those readers who, who might not know each of you, and we can get into the book here in a second. Um, Bill, maybe we could start from with you, and love to have you introduce yourself to, to our audience, and just give folks a quick, quick sense of, of your work. And then, uh, Gord, we could pass the ball to you as well. Would love to give folks some context here. Uh, sure, I'm 
my name is Bill or uh, William uh, J. Webb is my author name. Uh, I'm a, an adjunct professor at uh, Tyndale Seminary, and I teach uh, in the area of biblical studies. Um, been teaching a good while, but uh, and this is about the uh, third or fourth volume that I've uh, written, um, mostly in the area of uh, biblical studies, but the crossover between hermeneutics and ethics uh, within the biblical text, and how to read the biblical text uh, within not only its literary context up and down the page, which would be a wonderful improvement upon many for many Christians, but uh, but also to take it one step further and to read it <clears throat> within another context, and that's within the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, the context within within which it was written, and that gives you uh, a whole fresh pair of ears with which to hear and understand the biblical text, and that's been a wonderful journey in my life, and I. I Bumped into this uh, gentleman, uh, Gord, Dr. Gordon Osti, uh, and he's been a great friend over the years. And uh, he, uh, he, you know, he has studied uh, Old Testament uh, war texts and that sort of thing. And I was working on a book, and we just got talking, and I knew that I needed his expertise, and he did in mine, and we needed to work at this together. And so uh, this book has been for me, uh, a 14-year journey, then into editing another year, 15 total. So, wow. so and and Gord joined me in the last seven years, uh, and and my beloved wife Marilyn says to me this. She says, uh, "Bill, uh, why has this book?" She was comparing this book to other books I've written. Why has this book taken you forever to write? And uh, now, gentlemen, can I ask you a question? When when your wife says that to you, you know, why is such and such taking you forever to to do that? Is, is, is she speaking literally, um, you know, or or perhaps uh, hyperbolically? Yeah, and so I, I see a segue here. A little foreshadowing yeah, here, huh? Oh, yeah, exactly. We're not off the topic, though. We're right on the topic. <laughs> so, of course, Marilyn's been reading a lot of what I've been writing. So <laughs> we both chuckled and had a uh, an interesting discussion on them. Anyway, that's a little bit of background. But Gordon and I crossed paths uh, and uh, have had a uh, just, a, I think, a wonderfully enriching relationship working on this book together. Excellent. And, and Gord, you're, you're also at Tyndale and, and, and a, a pastor. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm also an adjunct uh, professor of Old Testament studies at Tyndale. And uh, I'm also the teaching pastor at uh, Cedar Creek Community Church up here. And i um, been teaching Old Testament studies for yeah, well, a while now, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. uh, my area of focus has been mostly on uh, Joshua judges uh, and that kind of that kind of area, and so wow. I've been working there for a while. And uh, Bill and I, I actually, I, I came across Bill Bill's writings before I met him, and and I uh, actually used one of his textbooks in one of my classes. And then uh, a couple of years later, I, I met him, uh, and then kind of moved from there into a good friendship. And uh, we've been working together for. Yeah, the last 
forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> seven seven years plus the editing and all of that kind of stuff. But it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey, and uh, we've really enjoyed working together and, and kind of working through uh, just kind of being able to bounce off of each other. Some of these really hard texts in the Bible and trying to figure out, uh, okay, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we approach some of these, these stories and yeah. some of these texts in the Bible that just seem so bloody and even brutal <laughs> and sometimes yeah. uh, actually quite often barbaric. Absolutely. Okay, uh, yeah. I got that one. <laughs> Even I got that one. That was a subliminal advertising, right? That's right. That's just, right. Just thought I'd throw it in there. There'll, there'll be lots of those. So um, <laughs> this this book, man, I, I was really excited when we received it um, because there's this thing that happens where I think, I mean, and I've seen it happen a lot where we, you know, friends of mine or you know, maybe people from church or whatever will be in conversation and. Along this the, the the path of discipleship to Jesus, uh, hopefully, what you know what should be happening is we we sort of grow in sensitivity to um, uh, what God is doing in the world, right? And what God wants—the kind of world that God wants to create—and hopefully, our discipleship our discipleship to Jesus uh, makes us more than aware of the places where the world is not quite there yet. And those are the places where we want to get to work. And so uh, I've seen a lot of times where, um, and I've experienced this myself, where that process of discipleship, trying to uh, become a person that is shaped and formed by uh, Jesus and his message and the revelation of God that we uh, see in him, um, we, we, it, it creates a tension, though, when, when, when that sensitivity and that, and that, that kind of progress um, Brings us brings us back to the text, and then we go back to those books, Gordon, just like you've been talking about with Judges, or maybe Second Samuel, or First Samuel, or um, Deuteronomy, and and there are there are a lot of texts in there that begin to create a lot of tension um, for Christians. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we could start there. Can you start a little bit with the tension out of which this book uh, came from for you guys personally, and also I guess just from where you're trying to uh, to write from. Do you want to start with that one, Bill? Hey, you go. You go for it. Run. Okay. Run but for me, for for me, certainly, um, the tensions were there when I was doing. I did my doctoral studies in the area of Book of Judges, and you know, you're reading all kinds of. And the Book of Judges is one of the most depressing books in the Bible, mm -hmm. just because the further you go, the worse things get. And by the time you you get to the end of the book. It's absolute chaos. And, you know, as you're reading this and you're, you know, sometimes there's descriptions of how God is, you know, involved in this in, in one way or another. And you're kind of going, what's going on there? How does that work? How do I understand that? Because, as you said, there's tensions there. There's tensions, you know, within the book, but also within the larger body of Scripture. Okay, how does this work with you know, um, New Testament and, you know, even other places in, in the Old Testament. And so uh, that for me, and just kind of smacking up against that was coupled with my own background. And um, I'm the son of, uh, my parents are both uh, immigrants to Canada. They immigrated uh, out of Germany just after the Second World War. Oh, wow. And uh, for me, I remember sitting on my grandma, grandma's knee hearing 
you know, stories of what it was like to live through the war days and, and you know, in some of the loss, some of the incredible losses that on all sides that happened as a result of that. And then also, you know, hearing about some of the, um, some of the incredible ways, almost like it, I can't believe they did that. You know, what happened with the, the Nazis and, and the, not only the Jews, but uh, certainly focusing on them, mm-hmm. you know, and kill, trying to, trying to exterminate an entire race in, in Europe and, you know, hearing about that afterwards and going, how does all of that fit then with what I read in the Bible? So I think in part for me, the, you know, some of the tensions that you talk about came out of those two places and just a personal wanting to try and fit those together and then coupling that with, uh, you know, a pastoral side where I serve in a church. And, you know, it's not every day, but more and more there's there's people and particularly young younger people are, are wrestling through this stuff. They hear this and they go, oh, what's that all about? And, and oftentimes even more than that, you, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. for, for me, um, the book was birthed out of that, uh, that kind of situation, that confluence of, of tensions. And just for me, wanting to work some of those out and understand it a little bit better. Right. Thank you. you know, I, I guess I had a very similar uh, journey in some respects, but mine was uh, perhaps more extended in, in terms of a variety of biblical texts so that my, my, my own career, I suppose, has kind of wandered through a labyrinth of uh, difficult texts. So texts with respect to uh, slavery, with respect to women, with respect to corporal punishment, and on and on and so forth and the ethics of those texts. And I've often wrestled with them uh, more out of, uh, not in part, interest in writing and teaching, but uh, also deeply out of my own uh, faith journey. Uh, you know, can I still believe uh, that God, a transcendent um, divine being, would in some way speak through scripture um pretty tough to to hold uh, a particular view of god in terms of his uh, being absolutely loving and just absolutely just and and his ethic being uh connected in some way to what he calls us to do you know and how how he calls us to act and then we we find him acting in ways that seem to be contradictory to that um, that makes for a uh, something of a conundrum of faith, and so for me, this is uh, part of my own trying to work out what what is possible, uh, and, and what can I still experience uh, this God who um, who I believe in within Scripture. So, faith journey. Great. In the book, you guys describe your um, the perspective, or the, the I guess the hermeneutic, maybe you're um, that you're using is it's a it's an incremental redemptive movement perspective. Um, can you unpack each of those terms and sort of hmm. how you see that being distinct from um, the other types of uh, options on the table for Christians as they read these texts and try to think ethically? Yeah, yeah, let me do that one, Gord. Um, you go, Bill. I, 
uh, I think uh, to 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 give a uh, put it into a sports metaphor uh, for our listeners, I think it it is kind of like uh, on a football field. Quite often, a one particular move uh, pushes the scrimmage markers downfield. In other words, they you know we move with the ball downfield um, 10, 20 yards. Uh, but we don't always make it to the goal line. So if we think of a goal line on a football field, uh, and, and uh, uh, I sure hope that the football season gets going, but uh, if we think of a goal line on a football field as uh, ultimate ethic, uh, would, would be the best way of, uh, of humans treating other humans. Um, mm. Sometimes when we, what we read in Scripture is, is certainly nowhere near an ultimate ethic. Uh, and... <clears throat> Um, you know, we, we should have figured that out because Jesus gives us some tips towards that. But, but anyway, it's not an ultimate ethic. And, and, but what we do find and where we do hear God's redemptive spirit is that God takes the ball and moves it 20, 30 yards down line. And often crossing the canonical horizons, it moves further. Uh, and so, uh, for example, in the slavery text, that is so often seen where, uh, yeah, this is the, some of these slavery texts in Scripture are quite ugly, quite, quite um, ethically uh, deficient, if you will. Uh, but what's going on, if you hear those texts within their ancient context, they're actually moving the scrimmage markers downfield. Now, they don't uh, go all the way to the, to uh, commands of abolition for, for the Israelites and commands of abolition for, for, uh, in the New Testament. But, it, but if you take and harness that redemptive spirit and that incremental movement, um, so incremental, it's, it's not complete, it's partial, but that incremental movement is big when you hear it within the uh, the original context. Uh, and and um, if if you look at uh, even the way that ethics works in our culture in our in our settings where our culture is trying to actually do something good, mm-hmm. um, in some ethical areas, quite often it is incremental. <laughs> you know, uh, going back to <clears throat> William Wilberforce, for example, in, in British Parliament. Uh, um, he spent his whole career pushing towards the abolition of slavery, but never got there. Uh, he, he moved a few things along incrementally. Okay. Uh, and that's often how ethics work. Uh, it's particularly in groups, and, and uh, uh, it's much, much more difficult to do. Well, uh, God works within his people and within Scripture, and uh, one of the ways that we see him working is, is through this um, not quantum leaps to the all the way uh, to the goalpost, but um, in in uh, movements that are actually achievable within the original context. Great, so that's good. a little bit of, of what an incremental redemptive uh, movement ethics is. If you if you want to think in terms of uh, uh, a sports analogy, it might work better. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, I mean. A hockey metaphor, you know, might be. More apt here. That's what I, that's what I was expecting. I, I appreciate you accommodating to us as 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 the Americans here. That's helpful. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So uh, it sounds like I mean, 
it sounds like you guys are saying that we can trust that ethical intuition that we have when we come to these texts and that and we're appalled. Which, which, frankly, I think for for a lot of my friends when they read these texts uh, and they begin to have questions, some of the common responses are, "Well, this is, you know, we need to be really careful because God is God is a holy God, and and, and who are we to question Him? And this is, you know, they're they killed." Uh, you know, the order was to kill every man, woman, and child, and they didn't, and so this happened. Or, um, you know, or, or or it could be that there are other there are other responses that sort of say, well, God didn't necessarily uh, command it, but He allows it. Um, how do you see this this um, incremental redemptive movement offering something that sort of uh, that that both recognizes the legitimacy of our ethical intuitions about these texts? but also draws us in and, and, and keeps us from just throwing the whole thing out. Right. Well, it, it, you've, you've really uh, um, pulled us into a discussion of where does this fit within a spectrum of views? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, on uh, some page, page 20 of the book is a spectrum. And this particular view fits somewhere in the middle uh, between views on the one hand that say, um, you know, all all that was done in this warfare and the rape text and everything, all of it, because God commanded it, it is good and God can do it and God is good. And uh, God's ethic, for example, uh, on, on the far end of the spectrum, God's ethic is not even tied to human ethic. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, some people believe that. I won't get into naming names on the podcast, but some people, some scholars believe that, and, and some Christians believe that. Uh, the more traditional view would be that, uh, yeah, there is something going on with the ethics, but God is, from all other revelation, uh, the more traditional position is is that God is is righteous, and there is some connection between his ethic and human ethic, um, but we just don't know how. Uh, so the bottom line, if God said it, if God commanded it, it must be good. We just don't know how. And it does cause angst. It does cause difficulty. Kind of a uh, mystery, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So the, we, we jump to a mystery view. And uh, and on the other far end uh, would be uh, quite, quite far would be new atheism, which would say, ooh, yuck, you actually believe in a God that does that, and, and you want to celebrate that kind of God. Um, and so, uh, you know, some of the more famous new atheists have quite a, quite a, a verbiage uh, for referring to God as a divine rapist and uh, a baby killer. Uh, you know, your God slaughters babies. You, you still worship that kind of God, you know? Uh, so they, they put it quite bluntly. Um, now those who, uh, there are a number of views which are, which would come in between ours and that one, that some, some would hold that, uh, uh, for example, uh, if you're, uh, some of the Mennonite views would be that, um, any violence uh, cannot be attributed to God. So if you start from that platform, then you don't have uh, much play, much wiggle room <laughs> within some of these texts. Mm-hmm. So they, they develop some, I mean, I've learned a lot from uh, certain of those uh, in that position, but they often take a very dark view of the ethics within this material. 
um, so they see the really dark side, which which we acknowledge. Um, but we also see within the within the the difficulty that God's hand is moving His people, even within the muck and mire. Not unlike the slavery text, and not unlike the texts about uh, women and gender, and not unlike. Uh, uh, the corporal punishment texts and et cetera, et cetera. That I've argued an incremental ethic in other places. Mm-hmm. So, um, so ours is in kind of right in the middle, smack in the middle. <laughs> We're going to get nobody that agrees with us. <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> so everybody would just go to the other side. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, there is uh, a, a sense in which we appreciate aspects of either polarity but we want to uh, we want to as much as possible work with the evidence and and uh, see if it uh, if it flies yeah Gore, is there anything you want to add to that what do you think yeah i was just going to piggyback on that i think one of the one of the the things that you mentioned is kind of that the tensions where we come with our questions and then we bring them to scripture Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of what we read in Scripture really um, kind of butts up against uh, or grinds against, grates against, or, or more, our, our modern sensibilities. And, and so, you know, you, that's, that's that point where you're kind of going, what's up, what's going on? And one of the things that we talk about in the book is that um, there, it's almost like you've got two different sides of a conversation, I guess, or, you know, our modern questions, we talk about it this way, are kind of square pegs trying to fit them into round holes. Uh, it's not that they're bad or wrong or anything like that, but at times the our, our questions aren't the same ones that the Bible is written to address. Um, questions that the Bible uh, seems to be addressing are uh, questions related to um, you know, holy land and, and creating sacred space in the, in the books of Joshua and, and Judges, uh, that kind of thing, um, w- which really aren't, you know, our, our, our main concerns. Um, our, our questions have to do with how, how do you explain the killing of, you know, entire families, men, women, children, and, you know, everyone, how, how does that work? And so um, I think one of our, our, one of the things that we kind of come uh, or try and advocate in the book is that our, 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 um, the, the, the questions that the Bible is trying to answer are, are great. Uh, they're great questions and they're, they're trying to answer questions that fit into the larger storyline of scripture. Uh, but, uh, the, the modern questions or the modern, you know, things that we're bringing don't always kind of come together well. And so we have to read, what that means, that tension that's created by that, by trying to put a square peg in a round hole, by asking a question that that's really not one that the Bible is directly trying to answer is, okay, how do we then read scripture and, and how then, how can that inform our modern questions? And so we start, and Bill alluded to this already, kind of one of our starting places is to go, okay, let's go back to Scripture, in in many cases, much of what we're talking about is the Old Testament, although we do eventually get to the New Testament stuff as well. And by starting there, we're asking questions like, uh, all right, what was, you know, 
what was Joshua trying to say in using this kill them all, leave no one alive kind of language or, or, mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. And especially when you compare that to other people around that time and how were they thinking, how did they talk about their battles? And there's been a lot of really good scholarship that's already been done on that. And we've kind of hopefully built on that a little bit. And one of the things that we see is that, uh, that when you get to this, you know, these descriptions in the book of Joshua, where we read that Joshua killed everyone in this town and then the next town and he killed everyone in that town and they showed them there were no mercy, no one was left alive. When we compare the way that we, the, 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 the writers of scripture use those phrases uh, with uh, other passages later on in the book of Joshua, for example, we see that there's a number of places that you know, we were told that Joshua killed everyone, left no one alive there. And then you read a few chapters later and you go, Joshua is reconquering those cities. There's still people there. What What's going on? How did that, how does that work? Right. If they, if there's no one alive there, why are there a few chapters later, somebody else there? And so when you compare what's going on in mm-hmm. the way that the biblical authors describe what's going on in warfare and you look at uh, other ancient authors, uh, there's a commonality there in terms of um, the use of uh, hyperbole. And so Bill give you one sports analogy. I, I can give you a, a, a hockey a, a analogy to kind of <laughs> emphasize that. Skate away, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we both live relatively close to Toronto. So, you know, let's say we, uh, you know, you hear on the news that uh, the news the newscaster reads the sports news and says last night the Toronto Maple Leafs slaughtered the Boston Bruins nine to three or something like that. And right away we oh, know actually, I like the Bruins. <laughs> <laughs> we know that, uh, that that there aren't you know. Uh, five bodies plus two goalies lying on the ice and that the next game, they got to get five more bodies in to play, play the game. You know, it's the, the language of the, the Maple Leafs slaughtered the Boston Bruins uh, is meant to emphasize that it was a very, very sound defeat. And it's no question about who won that battle, but you know, there, there's not actual bodies in that case lying on the, uh, on the, on the ice. And a similar kind of thing is going on in the biblical text when the Bible says that Joshua killed everyone and left no one alive. It's meant to emphasize a, a decisive victory. And yeah, in, in, in war, in battles, there, there are people that are killed, but not entire, uh, not entire villages, not entire people groups or, you know, um, men, women and children. Um, and, and if we look at it in those terms, then we go, OK, then our perspective of reading genocide back onto those texts doesn't quite fit because that's not what they're trying to say. And so that, mm-hmm. that doesn't answer all of the questions there, but it helps us with that particular question and to be able to say, all right, that, that they weren't trying to say we, there, there was genocide that, that happened there. And so, you know, when you stack that together with a number of the other arguments that we make in the book, I, I think it's a really helpful way to yeah. say, to, to begin to address our modern issues and questions by going back and, and saying, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot there that we can do to understand that better. And then there's also redemptive, a lot of redemptive things that are going on in, in the whole battle 
descriptions as well that we could talk about if you want. So, I mean, maybe, maybe they didn't kill everybody. Maybe there's some hyperbole here, but are you, are you saying that, um, the sort of abstract value of creating this sacred space, um, justifies these concrete actions of, of, of killing maybe not everybody, but maybe, maybe just some women and children or, well, let's let's uh, let's clarify what we're trying to do with the hyperbole thesis. Uh, first of all, um, for for one thing, what we're saying is for sure you kill the king uh, because the king is is embodies the whole people, and you you kill any threat to uh, to the group, such as the army, uh, etc. Um, you probably don't go in and uh, kill women and children. So that it becomes uh, maybe some women and children got killed, but it becomes much more of typical warfare. Um, and, in an ancient Near Eastern context. In an ancient Near Eastern context. And what that means is we're at least not working with the same problem that the traditional position has or worse yet, the traditional plus position, as I label it, mm-hmm. uh, where, um, you know, God did this, therefore it must be right. And, and, uh, and, you know, we can't figure it out. And, and so, uh, I, I, I no longer hold that position though. I was raised in that position. So I'm not, I don't have that angst anymore to worry about. Um, it's a starting place. Okay, I would call it an ethical zero point. Um, no longer am I taking those texts and saying to people who I'm ministering to, when God says kill women and children, that's what he meant. Run around with your sword. And uh, uh, I, I can't even imagine plunging a sword into non-combatant women and children, yeah. you know, old and young. Uh, I, it just makes me gag. Um, so, uh, I don't have to wrestle with that in my faith anymore. Okay. Now, um, that's a great starting point. Now, what you've raised, um, now was that Andrew or Steven? I can't see the lines of voice anymore. Uh, who, who raised that question? That's me, Steven. No, oh, Steven. Okay. Thanks, Steven. Um, you know, what, you, what you've raised is, uh, well, does that do everything? Uh, you know, uh, well, surely there, you know, did God have to even work through this method? Um, does this resolve all of the ethics? No, it doesn't. But it's a starting point. Okay. And the book takes on other theses to to help take that further. Uh, and... If you want, we could unpack some of them. I mean, sure. Let's. I mean, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, one, one other element would, that that is very significant within the book, and where we make contribution, I think we make a good contribution to the discussion with the hyperbole, and, and with that area, we take the hyperbole further than any other work in existence right now, in terms of, at least in terms of the biblical 
any true Eastern uh, evidence arguing for it. Um, so that that is a significant contribution to the debate. Uh, but then, um, then if that's the ethical zeroing point, then how do we go further with with the mess that's still there ethically? And uh, one of the ways is by wrestling with the redemptive element within that text, okay, mm -hmm. and highlighting the redemptive elements in the text. And so that uh, in the war rape text, we show that as ugly as the biblical war rape stuff is, uh, that it moves hugely. And, and within the killing text, it mo moves hugely. Let's, let me just illustrate with the killing text. Uh, one of the chapters that I worked on was ancient Near Eastern or ancient world uh, war atrocities. Uh, that chapter nearly killed me writing it because uh, I I had literally nightmares. I'd wake up in a cold sweat because I, I started visualizing in, in even in my sleep and dreams some of these uh, uh, because I was researching for. Uh, for months on end, uh, ancient or Eastern texts and iconography and, and uh, uh, other ways of communication, literary, but uh, a variety of, of forms of uh, ancient or Eastern evidence that showed the the horrendous treatment of uh, of of their war captives. Uh, that they would uh, in, in that chapter. Um, kind of goes through this uh, war museum that is so disgusting and ugly yeah. that, uh, you know, you would you would take some of your captives and you would stake them to the ground uh, and you would particularly do this <coughs> with the elite, with the, with the, uh, with the king or with the uh, uh, high officials. Yeah, with people. the high officials in order to make a, a statement and you would you would stake them to the ground and you would skin the you would peel the skin off uh, their Gosh. bodies while they were alive uh, and and you would take that skin some actually uh, some some of the kings would take that skin and they turned it into furniture and put the furniture in their in their castles or their uh, wow their their palaces and um, uh, yeah just unbelievable uh, and then you leave them out there to be uh, to be eaten, or or in many cases they they did the uh, the prefiguring to the cross of Christ, uh, the prefiguring before before the Romans uh, developed a cross. The the uh, the prototype to the cross was uh, impaling, and, and so you take uh, a. a a, a log or a stick or something or other, and you run it up various orifices of the body. Uh, and virtually, when you're when you're studying this stuff, you you realize they they did it in every which way because they got bored, you know. Uh, wow. And they wanted to see they wouldn't hit the main organs; they would run it up through missing the organs just to keep the person alive on this pole for days. Uh, and it didn't take it as long as, you know, it, it, crucifixion could go for a week. You know, yeah. Some could stay alive for a week. But the excruciating pain, uh, and, and you realize this is the utter, utter disgust of, of the treatment of humanity mm. in, in, in war. Uh, and, and that chapter just goes on and on and on. Uh, you know, the Egyptians had 
all kinds of ways of doing these brutal uh, rope ties, which would dislodge all kinds of joints within people that would leave them in, in complete disfiguration, but also would cause intense pain. So they would be wailing uh, as they came in in the victory to parade. They would just be in agony. Um, and, and just, just uh, you, you, what you see then, you move to the biblical text in time after time, what are they told? They are told to, uh, to kill with a sword. Such and such was put to death with the sword. The only person who was impaled was the king. The, the, the king was impaled outside, uh, as on, on, uh, on the victory place, <coughs> outside the city, to say that the city fell. It was a symbol of the falling city. Uh, there wasn't the, weren't these mass live impalings. No, it was after death. And here's what's really cool. They took the body down at sunset. So you, you don't have you don't have impaling for torturing. You have impaling as a symbol to both sides. Hey, we won. You know, you guys better run because <laughs> we won. We got your king. Okay. Um, and then you don't mistreat the bodies. The, the, the mistreatment of bodies in ancient Eastern warfare was uh, it was unbelievable. What, what would happen? I, I kept I kept seeing all of these uh, paintings, ancient Eastern paintings and, and iconography and artwork where you'd see a, a battlefield and, and the armies were throwing, <coughs> excuse me, the bodies into the rivers and the bodies were washing away. And I thought, why are they doing that? And then I started reading and, and research on, on, on treatment of the dead and, and uh, some of the things that they would do to, to actually inflict uh, pain not only on the dead uh, themselves uh, in terms of dying and torture, but also psychological torture of the people that you've uh, uh, that you have conquered. And, and you would take uh, you would take some of the captives and you make them find the bones of their dead and make them grind up the bones of their dead. Imagine taking your loved yes. ones and, and doing that. Uh, and of course, in that culture, the bones of the dead were part of, very much part of the the family, uh, and, and they would they would have them come and and f dig up the graves, and, and they would take those bones, literally. They, they write about these in their annals that they would take the bones of this uh, of the ancestors with them back to their original cities, uh, as the as the great conqueror, and then they would. You know, dispose of them there just to, just to wow. psychologically crush. You just don't kill. You crush and, and tear apart. And, uh, and, and so these pictures I often saw of the throwing them into the rivers were just another way. You, you separate uh, one generation from all, all ancestry um, and uh, just just. Um, you, you start reading the biblical text and you see none of that's going on. In fact, the treatment of the most of the, the, the most hated person on the other side, which would be the king and, and his officials, was actually uh, <laughs> you gave them a burial at sunset you know? right. and you don't start, you kill with the sword. You know what I mean? Like Bill, how do you can I interject at a question? Yeah. So how, how do you 
respond. So, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Clearly. I mean, so (laughs) God is doing something. Yeah. There's clearly a contrast, right? So for the listener who's going, okay, that, you know, where do you, how do you respond to someone that says, okay, you know, that can be interpreted as, okay, well, listen, we're not as bad as, as those people, right? Like right. we'll just kill, we'll kill you like they will, but we won't torture you or we'll, we'll kill you, but just with the sword, we'll impale, we'll only impale the King, but not those folks, right? Folks that are hearing that or either hearing that or have read that. And then are thinking about Jesus of Nazareth, right? And some of these, the, the language, you know, the, the Gentiles lorded over these people, right? He doesn't say, well, you know, you can lord it over a little bit, right? You're not going to do it quite as bad as they do at Rome, but it's okay to have a little bit of, mm. of this and that. I mean, how do you sort of respond? So part of the challenge with the incremental uh, theory, if you will, which I think, by the way, makes a lot of sense is, but is God sort of like, he's obviously willing to tolerate some level of either misunderstanding or sort of not, not ideal um, this isn't going to come out that way. Not ideal sort of practice, right? He he's ultimately has a better end in mind and is going to almost get there in Jesus, but is is sort of not there yet. But what does that say about kind of God's character? It almost seems divided if it's ultimately made most manifest and clear in Christ, who probably wouldn't put up with any of this killing, right? Whether you impale the king yeah, or yeah, or yeah. impale everyone. Right, how do you right. sort of ju- how do you respond to that sort of tension? Well, I think you 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 know. Each each of my so-called answers, you keep pushing me further, <laughs> and you're right <laughs> to do it. You're absolutely right. So that so that uh, the hyperbole thesis takes us so far, and, and then the incremental movement takes us to see that ooh, even within the the killing, uh, something's going on quite redemptive there, uh, and they, and yet uh, we're we're nowhere near where Jesus is yet. Uh, so. Um, how do we get there? And, and that uh, comes through uh, some other uh, theses that we keep working with in the book. So there are actually, in the introduction of the book, we outline uh, five or six theses. And uh, um, there, there is another thesis. Would you like us to un- unpack another one? <laughs> Sounds like a good, good transition. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Let's go for it. And then I want to... Hey, hey, guard. How about how about you jumping into uh, uh, talking about uh, Yahweh as the reluctant warrior God? Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd love to do that. Jump into one more thesis, and then and then I'd love to kind of walk through a text instead of watch watch you guys do this in real time. That's all right. <laughs> all right. So. So one of the other, and your question's a great one, you know, it seems like, you know, the, what you get in the New Testament is so much at odds with what you get in the Old Testament. And um, that, and kind of the dominant noise or the dominant note that we hear from people so often is, well, yeah, there's all that kill everyone, leave no one alive, you know, God is a God of judgment and, you know, just kind of blast you with all of the ick and ick. But, um, you know, as we started poking around, we started finding, and even now, I'm, you know, after we've, we've kind of finished with the book, I'm still finding more of these, uh, I guess, redemptive pictures of God where it's not that God is divided. Our, our thesis is that God accommodates uh, kind of where Israel is at, that they live in this culture and God says, okay, well, you're there. You're not where we want you. To, I want you to be, but 
We're going to, using Bill's analogy, we're going to move you a little bit further down the road. But that's not where I'm at, but I'm not going to move you all the way because you couldn't handle it. And there's all, and Bill kind of unpacks a whole bunch of different reasons why God doesn't just kind of move you right down to the, you know, the end zone. But you do get these glimpses of a God who says, warfare is not my plan for you. It's not my best will for you. And so you get these pictures um, and they start right at the very beginning, in the beginning of creation, and, and they move throughout the, the Bible. And you get these beautiful pictures of God where God says, that's not the way I want to be known. That's not what I want to be known for. And that's not what I want my people to focus on. So you get pictures, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, where um, you know, you've got in Deuteronomy 7, where you've got what's called the law of the king. And it sets out all of the things that the, the ideal king should and shouldn't do. And the ideal king, the, the primary thing that the ideal king should do is not engage in warfare, but study Torah. And uh, not only that, but in that passage, there's all kinds of restrictions that are put on the king. One of them is just not going back to Egypt in order to procure more horses. And the horses are important because they go with chariots. Um, and, uh, and there's kind of this. Let me just jump in to say in our context, those are weapons of mass destruction. Mm, you got horses, it. horses and chariots in that time were their weapons of mass destruction. They're the most powerful weapons of, of the of the time period, right? They they would slaughter hundreds as opposed to arrows coming from afar, wow. uh, which wouldn't have the same kill rate, etc. Yeah. At any rate, okay, keep going, Gord. Yeah, and so and, and so God says, "Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go get more horses." Uh, that's not what I want. And, uh, and, and God's putting boundaries around what the king can do and, and kind of making it, uh, doesn't make it impossible for him to engage in warfare, but makes it much more difficult. And there's, and that's kind of a clue that God's saying, that's not what I want to be known for. One of the clear examples that we get of that, you know, the, probably the most well-known and, and maybe most accomplished warrior uh, in, in the Bible or the warrior king is King David. Mm. And yet when it comes time for, you know, building the temple, it's not David that gets to build it. Most of the time, the pattern in uh, the ancient Near East in particular is that kings would go to war, they would go to battle, then uh, as a result of battle, they would build a temple and then on the walls of the temple, they would boast about all of their accomplishments. And again, Bill's talked about some of the icky stuff that, you know, the the war things that people would inscribe in their texts or the pictures that they would put up on the walls of their their temples. And, you know, and there, there's pictures of body parts. There's pictures of the king holding up, uh, you know, a foreign enemy and he's about to bash his head in with a mace. You know, and, and the analogy would be just picture kind of walking into your, you know, your church where you go to worship. And imagine up on the walls, you know, these pictures of, you know, of, of warfare violence, of all, all, some of the stuff that Bill described. Imagine that, you know, in the stained glass windows in the sanctuary mm. or whatever. That's the kind of analogy that kind of might work when it comes to the way the ancient Near Eastern kings uh, decorated their temples. Um, but when you imagine look at a pile of hands or a pile of heads 
or a pile, dare we even say uh, it's true, genitalia, um, heaped up, and then you hire your best artisans to chisel that into your temple in order to honor your God for the victory. Yeah, and that, that's your that's your kind of that's your worship experience, or that's kind of the environment into which, in in some cases, you're walking into. Yeah. And contrast that. Think about the way that God's temple is decorated. In when when Solomon, who by the way uh, ends up building the temple, uh, David's not allowed to build the temple because God says in Chronicles, in in a couple of places, in Chronicles twenty two and in twenty eight says, you've got blood on your hands. There's no way you're going to build my temple. Instead, the man of peace, Solomon, Shlomo, is going to build the temple. And what? how's the temple decorated? You've got palm trees. You've got pomegranates. You've got these beautiful pastoral kinds of scenes that are meant to evoke the Garden of Eden in all of its uh, peacefulness. You know, and, and so there's this massive contrast. You see other passages where, you know, it's it, it's uh, often it's not often that you read about people weeping in in regards to you know the. Sorry, let me say that differently or try that again. Before it, you get out of that, oh, you want to build on that one yet? Yeah, before you get out of the David's bloody hands one, you're going to jump to the to the crying God, I know. Right. But before you get out of David's bloody hands one, um, just just put that into context of uh, a, a Christian journey. I was raised in a church tradition, I think Gord was too, where the only thing that David did wrong was sleep with Bathsheba and, and kill Uriah. That was bad, okay. But right. I never learned about David as the, the bloody-handed David, you know, where God says, you are so soaked with war that I can't, I don't want anything to do with the bloody hand of David for building my temple. Wow. Now, yeah. that is absolutely, yeah. wow. that's absolutely ludicrous within an ancient Eastern world. Within an ancient Eastern world, it is battle, but the big, the big uh, you know, person uh, wins those victories and builds a temple to the God out of that victory and boasts about the war. And God says, I don't want any of that. And it's so, it's so antithetical. It's, it's like it's, one of the, it's a subversive right. war there's this massive. There's this massive yeah. contrast between what you find. And, and it says something about God that this is, the, these are the things that are important, especially if, you know, the temple is kind of the earthly dwelling place, the place on, on earth in, in Old Testament thinking that's most closely associated with the presence of God. And in that place, you know, you're not allowed to put any warfare uh, iconography at all. Um, so I, th that says something about God. There's other passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah where, uh, where you read about God weeping, not over the destruction of his own people, but of the enemies of the, the Moabites in some cases. Uh, in another passage, uh, there's this wonderful picture of the uh, Israelites. The Israelite town is surrounded by Amorite warriors. And the, the, the servant of uh, Elijah, uh, Elisha comes to him and says, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? 
and uh, Elisha says, don't worry, there's more with us than there are with them. And, you know, it's all the soldiers of, of God, all the, the chariots of fire that surround the Amorite chariots. And so, you know, in a warfare context, you're talking, we got you circled, you have no hope. And then what's really cool is uh, God strikes the, the Amorites blind. Uh, Elisha leads, Elijah leads them, or Elisha leads them into downtown Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And then all of a sudden their eyes are open and they go, oh my goodness, we are so fried. Uh, you know, we have no hope. And it's at that point that the king of Israel comes up to Elisha and says, can I kill him? Can I kill him? Can I kill him? And, and Elisha says, no, absolutely not. You would not kill. You can't kill him. And instead what happens is Elisha says, make a feast. Wow. Feed them. And they, they uh, by feeding them, and then they send them off. And, and that kind of quells all, all of the hostilities and, 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 you know, that's just a couple of, of pictures of God that kind of helps us bridge into the, the New Testament because, you know, all of those say something about God that, and God, the way that God thinks about war, the way that God thinks about warfare, and that, that warfare really is not his plan for people, that there's something better. And mm. we move towards Jesus in the New Testament where God kind of kind of moves the ball further down the field, if you will. So I don't know, Bill, if you want to jump in on that stuff. No, that's fine. Um, I, I just, uh, those, those are two very good yeah. uh, apropos uh, pictures of uh, Yahweh as the very uneasy, very unsettled uh, mm-hmm. warrior God. Great. Yeah, he didn't good. want this for Israel. Yeah. That's very helpful. Um, so I, I reached out to... Uh, a few friends of mine, you know, a lot of the texts in the Bible, I mean, you have all the violence and, and, you know, you could call it genocide. I think in your book, you know, you, you, you make a great argument for and not technically being genocide, but um, the, you have all the violence uh, that we see in the old Testament, but then specifically there are just a lot of ways in which women are treated. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and often yeah. in uh, the context of war and so I, I reached out to them, reached out to a few friends of mine that were women and said, hey, were there any, are there any texts um, that have been troubling for you? I, I, you know, we're going to have these, these guys on the podcast. I'd love to sort of feed them um, some questions or maybe some verses and, just sort of, and, and have them walk through um, this incremental redemptive um, hermeneutic with us. And, uh, of course, the, 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 unanimously, uh, Judges 19 comes up. So... Could we? Could you guys walk us through Judges nineteen, um, and maybe to take take a few minutes uh, to demonstrate, I guess, the power of this sort of incremental redemptive movement ethic as we get through that really hard text. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, maybe you want to talk about Judges nineteen, and then we could bump it to the Deuteronomy text. Uh, yeah, why don't we do that? I'll, why don't I take? Judges 19, and you can take the uh, the Deuteronomy text. How about that? Okay. okay. So, yeah, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, Judges 19, it is it is one of the most brutal, horrific, awful. You pick the you know uh, you pick the adjective and it'll negative adjective and it'll probably fit. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely horrific. Um. And uh, just to recap a little bit of the storyline, there's a, a Levite who has a concubine. His concubine 
heads back home to her home, which happens to be in, in Bethlehem, by the way. And uh, the Levite goes to bring her back. Uh, and uh, eventually they, they leave Bethlehem. And on their way home, they want to stop overnight. And uh, they don't end up stopping in Jerusalem, which would have been a, a, a natural stopping place. But instead, they move on to Gibeah, which is a town in Benjamin. And uh, it's kind of one of their own people. And, and they stop there and they stay the night there. And, uh, and as they're there... Uh, the men of the city come knock on the door and, and say, bring out this, you know, we hear you've got some guests, bring out this concubine and uh, bring out the women we want to, or actually it's bring out the men actually, that we want to know them, uh, which has connotations of, um, you know, it, it can be at the level of kind of, we want to get to know as in, Hey, how are you? But that's not what's going on here. It's more of a, uh, in get to know in the same sense as Adam knew his wife Eve. Um, and rather than kind of pushing his male guests out, the, the host ends up pushing out the concubine and his daughter, and uh, basically uh, they're gang raped uh, for the entire night. And it's, uh, it, it's so stomach churning and, and awful. And then uh, you know, in the morning, the the Levite wakes up and his concubine has, it's almost like she's kind of got her, you have to picture this, her hand is kind of on the doorstep almost. She's completely been ravaged and, and is spent. And so he says, okay, get up, let's go. And we don't know exactly whether she's dead or alive, but when he gets back, he cuts her up into 12 different pieces and sends them out throughout Israel and and you know says should this take place in Israel and so it's a it's an awful awful yeah. passage this is like this is like the i mean when I, when i read the book i was like okay judges 19 if 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 this will work with judges 19 <laughs> ugh cuz it's it, it it's like the basement level for me yeah it, it is it, it, it uh, it's probably it, it below is. the basement in the sewer down deeper yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly it's disgusting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for, for that one, and that, so that passage isn't kind of, it's not technically a, a, a war passage, but uh, I think we can talk about some things related to it anyway. Um, one of them is, uh, it, it's, I think it's, uh, the, in terms of a reading strategy, when you're, when you're reading the book of Judges, um, it's not a, a fun book to read. But one of the things you have to realize as you read in Judges, the, the further you go, the worse things get. And by the time you get to that passage in Judges chapter 19, it's kind of like all hell has broken loose. Uh, the, the way that the, the, the narrator in Judges frames it is that everyone did what was, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, rather than kind of doing what's right in God's eyes, that's what you—that's the circumstances under which all of this happens. And so, um, one of the things that I, I think we have to realize, knowing that things get worse and worse uh, as you go throughout Judges, is just going. This is not at all God's plan. This is Israel wandering away from God's plan and and, and walking walking away from God. And uh, this is what happens when you, you know, in in Israelite context, when you walk away from God, when you stop following him, heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of thing. And so it's not at all a 
um, it's not at all a passage that kind of points to what God wants. It's the, it's, in fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's don't, don't go that way. Don't walk away from God because when you do, this is what happens. This is the kind of thing that happens. They have in essence become the new Canaanites here. Yeah. Uh, when, when, when in scripture, Israel offers up children to God, they have become the Canaanites. When in scripture, they act with uh, immorality, they have become the new Canaanites. Uh, and so this is, that's not typically a war text, but it's a text where we're within the flow of, of the book. It's saying, uh, this is what you have become. You have drifted so far from God. Uh, Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry, there were a couple. Yeah, you were, you were going to jump in with a question there. Yeah, I, I, it sounds like what you're saying is that this is an example where the the authority of the text doesn't, uh, I guess, sort of sanctify or even, you know, certainly doesn't, you know, argue for or justify this behavior. But actually, it's an example yeah. where I guess the, the 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 scripture is. Maybe the most redemptive thing that we can do is just name this event as the atrocity that it, that it is, um, and yeah, kind of leave it at that. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, and maybe even go just a wee bit further than that and say, not only is this the atrocity that it is, but it serves as kind of a negative example. It's like, don't go this way. Hmm. You know, this is what happens when you do go that way. So it's kind of like, um, it's not just a stop sign. It's kind of, you know, you know, in when they, when they shut down the interstate and they take you off the interstate and say, you got to go in a completely different direction. That's kind of what this, this passage is saying. It's, it's, there's no, there's no God sanctioning that those actions whatsoever. It's, uh, it's the exact opposite. That's It's not the path to Eden. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so it, we, no, we didn't not. really, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time on that text uh, within our book because it doesn't really fit within yeah. uh, God, uh, so-called God-ordained or God-commanded texts. Uh, and, it, what it, and it is within the script or narrative, biblical narrative and authorial intent of the book of Judges, uh, the cesspool of humanity. And Israel has become uh, as gigawful as the Canaanites who get bit, booted out of the land. You know, they become the new Canaanites. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's helpful to see how your how the framework kind of still would, would can work so within that. But um, Bill, you were wanting to run through a passage in Deuteronomy. Do you want to jump there? Yeah. Well, uh, how much time do we have left here? What What are we looking at? Sorry, give, what are we doing? Maybe another 10 or so, okay. if, we have time, if that works. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Deuteronomy text that is uh, most problematic is the one uh, uh, known as the pretty woman text in Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 through 14. And uh, in Judaism, it's known as the pretty woman text because the, uh, you know, the Israelite army uh, has captured uh, has captives and they see among the captives uh, a, if you see among the captives, a pretty woman, a, a, a good looking woman. And um, when you go to war, 
Uh, and let me just read the text a little bit. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives, if you notice among the captives uh, a young lady far off in the corner and uh, she happens to be reading Torah, and you're a little bit surprised because you wonder, uh, you know, what would this uh, pagan be doing reading Torah? And so you wander over, get into a conversation with her, and uh, she is uh, a secret believer in Yahweh. And uh, out of that, you uh, you engage her and, and you find out, um, wow, she is your intellectual equal and she, uh, you know, uh, challenges you and you have you strike up a great friendship and, uh, right. and, and, and you know, you, you ask her out for a date. Uh, no, no, no. That's not quite how the text goes. That's, you know. <laughs> so this is this is nothing. Wait, wait, what like, translation is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is not sexuality at anything near close to uh, to ultimate ethic uh, and and um, the type of thing of of uh, love and care and uh, you know caring for one another. Uh, and, and this has all kinds of various, so I write a whole chapter on the ethical problems of just of this text. And then the next chapter, all on the redemptive side. And both are true. Uh, I think both are equally true. That there are, there's just some horrendous elements to this. Uh, she is, uh, this, this uh, person sees uh, this woman and uh, the text describes her as a beautiful woman. In Hebrew, that's kind of uh, ripe, if you will, like fruit, um, voluptuous, and uh, attracted to her. And nothing about uh, what the value of beauty is within Scripture and, and what is true beauty, as we've been taught, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament, in terms of um, what is really of value. Uh, well, he has the right to take her as a wife, uh, bring her into his home, uh, but he must wait uh, a month and shave her head, uh, trim nails, and uh, put clothes aside. All, all three are actually related to grieving uh, rituals. Hmm. Um, now, we look at that and we say, oh, my God, goodness uh afterwards uh, he can take her as as his wife and uh, uh you know she she will be uh, your wife and uh, you will be her husband um and uh, if you're not pleased with her uh, let her go wherever she wishes you must not sell her or treat her as a slave well uh, now, we're, we're entering a world where there is no such thing as marital rape. They don't even know what the concept is. Um, uh, so that is a contemporary development in terms of rape law and rape ethics. Uh, and we're, en we're entering a very patriarchal world. Uh, we're, we're entering a world where we have uh, we have arranged marriages. Okay, so... so uh, we, we're entering a, a world that's very strange in many ways compared to ours. And now this is in a war context with patriarchy added on all these other layers added on, you know. 
Uh, and uh, I, I sometimes put this out to a classroom uh, and say, okay, I, you know, get into groups and discuss this text and tell me, is this rape? Mm. And your answer can be one of two words, yes or no. Oh, and they hum and haw about it, and they you know struggle, and and uh, you know for some people it's pretty hard to call that God would you know say it's okay to rape, you know. Mm. But that's uh, if if you understand rape as uh, non consensual sex, uh, then uh, then it is rape. And, um, and in fact, uh, read some good biblical studies of, of uh, recent discussion in terms of the, uh, the, the Me Too movement. And, um, and some biblical scholars are starting to come up more loudly to say what many have held all along, and that is that uh, David rapes Bathsheba. <laughs> it's not simply take her as a wife. Right. It is rape. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, and, and uh, you know, this is not some liberal idea. This is conservative scholars are saying this. So, um, you know, this is, this is war rape. Now, uh, so I go through uh, a whole variety of uh, ethical problems with this material, uh, you know, and we're, uh, there, there, there are just so many uglies and, uh, I, I could spend the next hour just unpacking the ugly side of this material. Uh, it is generically jaded in terms of patriarchy, in terms of sexual property, in terms of progeny, uh, and, and and that look, progeny issues. It's it's an overvaluation of uh, uh, overvaluing of external beauty and, and non-focus on internal beauty. It's it's giving one month to grieve, which is a new, one new historical writer said, uh, who in their right mind would think that somebody would be psychologically okay after one month yeah. to, to then be enter into a sexual relationship with your enemy. Um, it, it is redemptive thread coming in. Uh, you, you want to jump to that. Okay. Okay. Then what, what, what is the redemptive thread? Well, that, what is, uh, and here I spend the next little chapter on, on the, uh, uh, what elements are redemptive within this text and within the context? And, and you have to really broaden up your scope to this text, but also this text within, um, and many writers, would, authors would say, well, you know, uh, they would have involved themselves in war rape, you know, a battlefield rape. That was the often one of the most common aspects of ancient Near Eastern warfare, of Greco-Roman warfare, was battlefield rape. Um, the Greeks put it on their coinage, uh, their coins, minted mm. coins with battlefield rape and their pictures and artistry. And, um, and their, their artists glorified war rape. Uh, and and uh, what... What scripture comes along and says uh, to battlefield rape is one, one very blunt answer, and the answer is no. 
Okay, mm. the Israelites were not allowed sexuality on the battlefield. In fact, they weren't allowed to even sexuality with their own wives while they were in in the process of conducting um, conducting warfare. Yeah, if uh, I can and, jump in for just a sec there, Bill, yeah. especially in contrast to many other ancient Near Eastern aspects of warfare, war where once you know, once you're done the battle, the big re- one of the biggest rewards is that you get to take women and you know do with them as you please, um, and you know, and bloodlust just kind of spills over into um, the taking of women, and, and so what you've got here is a huge contrast. Yeah, it's not. It, 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 this is uh, thanks, Gordon. It, it, it it's huge compared to the ancient Near Eastern setting where uh, what followed battle was, uh, you know, uh, have sex as you will. And, uh, you know, um, and, and so you have, you have Israel coming along. And, and uh, one of the things that you discover is this is not only is true of the battlefield, but it's true of the temple as well, so that they were not permitted any sexuality within the temple. Hmm. Uh, quite in contrast to the ancient Eastern world, where where temple sex was often hand in hand with uh, worship of the deity, and part of the reason for that is that the into battle, uh, the Ark of the Covenant follows them into the battle, which is Yahweh's presence in their midst, and, and which is which is an interesting part of the discussion between um, uh, in the whole Uriah scene where uh, Uriah says, you, you think, I know I'm going to sleep on the doorstep. I'm not even going to go in and have, have sex with my wife. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant is on the battlefield. Nobody has sex. And, and there are other, other uh, subtexts which like relate David, to I that. Guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of the big ironies is here. David is at, at home while his people are off and he's having sex. That's one of the big you know, uh, the big David, uh, mm. uh, ugly side of David uh, text. And uh, so so that is a huge step, a redemptive step relative to the, the ancient Eastern world. And then uh, I go through a bunch of other ones, but more specific to this particular text is the uh, the one one month delay in mourning at least gives some time and it gives uh, far more time than any other context we get. There is no other passage like this in the ancient Eastern world. You just grab and go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the whole month is, is actually mourning, the length of mourning for a, a great official, a king, that kind of thing, not a commoner. Uh, and then um, the... Uh, the, the the rituals themselves, the three rituals in terms of the clothing and the uh, the fingernails, etc., are are very uh, are ways of saying you permitted intense grieving during this time. Um, not just superficial grieving, but very intense grieving. And then they 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 do enter into a marriage covenant. The wording of the text is actually marriage covenant. Uh, so, uh, will you take this uh, 
man is your wife, will you take this, uh, <laughs> you know, the, sorry, this man is your husband, will you take this uh, lady as your wife? That's our wording, but in the ancient world, uh, in the patriarchal world, at least uh, worded it within a, a marriage covenant. Uh, and then in the end, uh, if things work out, uh, don't work out, uh, you're not you're not allowed to sell this woman as a slave. She goes free. Now that is that's odd, you know. In the ancient Eastern world, uh, the the various um, warriors were often handed women as uh, spoils of battle, and you could do with them what you will. You you could you could hire them out as your own private prostitutes. Uh, you you didn't have to marry them. You do, you could do whatever you want with them. And uh, if, you, if one of them didn't please you, you could sell her. You know, so there there are some very significant uh, uh, redemptive uh, glimmers and even uh, some, I would say, some pretty dramatic lightning bolts of, uh, yeah. of I think, God's redemptive hand in the midst of the schmuck and block. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, it's, it's not it's not simple or easy. It's, uh, you know, right. my, yeah. I think the U2 movement has, has sobered us up uh, a lot. Yeah. Well, super helpful. Yeah, th- th- this has been helpful. I mean, this is and this is just the tip of the iceberg on the book, you guys. There's, uh, I hope our listeners will will, will get uh, a copy of it. It's bloody, brutal, and barbaric. Wrestling with the war texts. Uh, we've got William J. Webb and Gordon K. Oste with us. Um, you guys do end the book also uh, with uh, just some great thoughts on what this means for the church. How do we, you know, if we have this kind of redemptive trajectory? granting that there are places where we are justified to find ethical problems in the text. Um, but if, if we will follow those breadcrumbs all the way through, uh, you got some very uh, helpful thoughts for um, how the church should be living and, and, and what that trajectory should mean for us today uh, as we try to plot mm-hmm. our own lives on that same trajectory. So, um, Thank you, Stephen. We uh, we have enjoyed writing it. It's been this, a blast. This conversation has <laughs> been a great conversation, uh, guys. Thank you just for for staying with us and um, listeners. I hope you get it. Andrew, anything you want you want to jump in here? No, I just say I would just say we exactly we scratched the surface. I think there's obviously a lot more here, a lot more to get into. If we had another couple hours, maybe we uh, <laughs> we could do that. But yeah, go get the book, guys. Certainly don't want to spoil it all for you. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you both for the contribution. 